Okay. So let's go with our first case. This is a 53-year-old gentleman found to be HCV infected in the Army 11 years ago. Has heard there are new therapies. Asked you about whether you think he should be doing this. He doesn't drink, and he's already been vaccinated appropriately for other uh, hepatitis viruses. His exam is normal. His initial laboratory studies show a little bit of ALT elevation. Bilirubin is normal. Platelet counts relatively normal. Uh, HCV antibody positive, 6 million copies of HCV, genotype 1A. You can remember 1A from 1B. 1A is awful, 1B is better. Yeah, there you go. So awful, he's got one awful, and he's seronegative for HIV. So, with all of that, we'll go ahead, we'll have you just scan this and a bunch of options, several are perhaps correct. Uh, just wanna see, if you had to pick one, Go ahead and vote. I talked to him about different music, actually. <laughs> of course, he says. All right, so most people went with a liver biopsy. Um, what, let's have the panel kind of walk through this. Uh, Dr. Sherman, you are going to be, the two hepatologists are going to leave, so we'll get your input on liver biopsies versus other tests. So, uh, as we have talked about, we need to know if this patient is cirrhotic. And we don't think he is based upon the exam that we have. We have not heard about stigmata of chronic liver disease. His platelets aren't too bad. But that doesn't mean anything. Sometimes you're fooled. I'm a little bit reassured that he is not cirrhotic if this really is only 11 years old when he got it. But uh, again, I, I guess I need to know how confident we are of that. Um, so I probably would get a liver biopsy on this patient. Uh, I'm less excited about non-invasive tests unless uh, I really don't have a choice. Uh, in the mid-ranges of disease, they are not terribly accurate. Um, I have, uh, I'm building a nice file of significant errors with these tests in my practice. Um, but uh, I think that I would get the biopsy uh, at this point. So Dr. Dietrich, do you biopsy everybody? You know, I don't, except for if they're in clinical trials. I mean, I'm spoiled because I have a fiber scan machine. You know, we could uh, <coughs> the, the transient elastography machine okay. in, in one of my exam rooms. Hold, and hold we just that walk thought. them next door and take care of that. Yep. But uh, so I don't biopsy them unless we have to, or unless there's a crossover issue. If okay. his ANA is one to three twenty, if yep. his AMA is elevated, you know, if there's something else, if there's if he's hetero or if he's homozygous from one of the hemochromatosis mutations and I want to sort of, you know, quantify the iron. So I'm not doing, we're doing a lot less, a lot fewer liver biopsies right. nowadays. Uh, 160,000 platelets makes me think it's not totally normal. I'm betting it would be stage three-ish. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So when you said you won't get fooled, remind, since this is election season, it remind me of the quote, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, we won't get <laughs> fooled again. I remember that. Um, so. What happened was, this, this is not somebody you managed, obviously, because he didn't get a liver biopsy. He got a HLA, he got an HL28B genotype simply because it was there, and Dr. Dietrich thought everyone should get it, uh, <laughs> and he's CT. Um, and so it's in the mid-range. 
So this gets back, now you've been biased a little bit by the comments, but uh, if in your practice or what you would want to do, would you should be performing on all <coughs> patients or uh, treat now or, uh, or whether to wait? Go ahead and vote. Well, actually, while they're voting, uh, Mike, I think it's important that some of our thinking has been changed around a lot with the, with the new protease inhibitors because we don't biopsy genotype 2-3 at all yep. because we've got 75-80% response anyway. rate. Yep. Now, if we've got genotype 1 and we're talking the same 75% response rate, you know, why would you biopsy genotype 1? So the audience isn't terribly convinced. Don't look at this relative scope because these are a little off. It looks like they're counting votes in Ohio or something, but um, <laughs> it's 51% versus, you know, 31 and 17. Um, Dr. Nagy, you were going to say. Yeah, well, I was going to comment um, to what Dr. Dietrich, Dr. Dietrich said, is that certainly we think about response rates when we make a decision of how to stratify someone, but we also think about the adverse events of the drugs that we're giving, the length of treatment, and what right. you, that, that's part success. of our, our risk decision making yeah. for certain. And I think um, there, I mean, you know, our center has a fiber scan machine as well, but we, we are not allowed to use it for clinical purposes. So I think it becomes an issue. Um, and I know that there are some centers who, can't trust their liver biopsies because they're done by interventional radiology and they get very poor cores and things like that. And so I think ultimately you really have to do um, what you think is best for your center in terms of which test you think is going to be the most predictive in your patient population. And, and I think we all get used to practicing within the centers and with, with the means that we have. Yep. And so for some of the folks who didn't do a liver biopsy, a lot of you might be ordering this test, which is also known as FibroSure. It's a kind of conglomeration of a bunch of inflammatory markers that God knows how they ever came up with it, but somehow they patented it and charged money for it. And it comes back with an index of 0.12. At this point, would you order a biopsy? Go ahead and vote. You gotta figure out what the hell that means. <laughs> Fortunately, there's no electric shock if you get it wrong, or you can just say not sure, and that's a safe way out. Okay. <laughs> There you go. So the next question is going to be even more exciting. Let's move on to the next question. Wait, it didn't come back at what point one two. It came back at point six eight. Now what are you going to do? Go ahead and vote. We're going to talk about this. <laughs> ah, now more people are willing to biopsy. Who obviously these folks obviously have been paying attention to these things. We haven't talked about this yet, but this is the test that Dr. Sherman was railing against uh, just a minute ago, <laughs> and, uh, and, and it just depends. Some of the, even some of the drug studies are allowing people, and if, they're, if they had a 0.12, it looks unlikely that they're going to have significant fibrosis. If it's anything above 0.2, it gets muddy, and then you really do need one, and if it's up here, you need one just just because so it's really I would I way I take away and I'd like you guys to comment that if it's very low I feel more comfortable especially in this clinical setting although as you said the platelet count of 160 kind of raises some questions but comments yeah two, two quick comments because I have been ordering a lot of these in the last two years or so trying to validate them myself against typical clinical non-study biopsies um, and I agree with what you said, that if it is very low or very high, you're actually pretty confident that it's right. But the cutoffs used in the test are themselves somewhat arbitrary. And in fact, the cutoffs that have been used in the studies are different than what you get from the manufacturer of the test. 
So if you want to feel pretty sure that it's cirrhosis, you've got to actually be over about 0.8. And you've got to be like under 0.1 to really be sure that there's no fibrosis present at all. Um, and everything else is a problem. I have run into an issue in the last several months that uh, three major national insurers have done a study. They, they hired a group of people to do an analysis of these, and their outcome is that they refuse to pay for it. And so in the last two months, I have gotten at least a dozen very angry letters from patients who are being charged the full cost of these tests because their insurer won't cover it. It's otherwise known as a full Monty. So are you, uh, are you ordering this test at all, or are you skipping right to the fibroelasticity test? Yeah. No, I don't do this at all. I think it's complete horseshit. Um, <laughs> can't, I, just like Ken, I've seen a million wrong ones, and it just leads people astray. So okay. I, I don't do it. Uh, you know, a couple of the clinical trials we're doing do do this. Yeah. But basically, they say if you don't have cirrhosis on this score, and I think it's around 0.68 or 7. All right, so walk us through this, Doug. This is the... Uh, thing you were talking about with this, uh, would you call it a pork monitor or something? Uh, looking at no, no, cheese. cheese, cheese, cheese. Thank you. I couldn't invented to see if it's tried to see if the brie was ripe. Right. Okay. <laughs> exactly. So you basically do this on the side, and and it looks the the thing that you have to remember with this is that for people whose BMI is elevated, say above what thirty, then the test starts to not be as accurate. Is that? Correct. It's just harder to, to perform, so you've got to get the plus size person's probe when, when you have a, big, a bigger person. Say um, that again? <laughs> plus size person. Plus size. You gotta, size. The, yeah, oh, the big, I see. The big, okay. I'm trying not to say something offensive here so I Donna see, yeah. doesn't jump on me. By the way, Dr. Dietrich <laughs> has been a longtime faculty member with the IESUSA, and invariably in everybody's evaluation, at least one person's evaluation, they say, Dr. Dietrich's comments were very rude. So he's, being, he's on his good behavior today. Please don't say that about him, because we won't, might, might be able to get him back. People who have adipose tissue more than a couple centimeters over their ribs make well it technically Bravo. very difficult Bravo. to, well done. to do, okay. perform this. Okay, <laughs> fine. Okay, so this is, uh, this is sort of what, this is the, elasticity index and it's a log, log scale as you can see and this is bad um, so if it's in the 10 to 30 rangers was I think 38 or something on the case you showed? 48. 48 right so that was bad um, and I guess it's good if it's just in single digits uh, low single digits. Yeah it's pretty good it's, you know because we do it frequently because where there's clearly error in it and there's some uh, there's some uh, uh, intra-observer error and stuff. It takes a little finesse. Somebody actually with, who actually looks small, like, like these two faculty members here, they're, they're small when their ribs are close together. It's actually hard to get the probe between the ribs. You have to get them to do a little yoga pose like this to, you know, to get, open the ribs up to get the probe in there. And so there's, if, you, if you let it hit the rib, then of course the rib is hard as hell. So it then brings a number up and you can get a wrong reading. So, but if you're doing it right, it's really, you know, it's 85% it's accurate, same as liver biopsy. Okay. Actually. So, so, would, so would, you, would, you, would you comment really quickly, Dr. Dietrich, on you know, the fact that inflammation can affect a, a read from a, 
one of these tests. Yes, and if you're talking about a patient who has other underlying liver disease. Yeah, if you've got, but it usually has to be ALT of like 300 or more to make the liver, anything that makes the liver stiffer will make this, uh, make this a higher number because that's what it measures is stiffness. <clears throat> it doesn't measure fibrosis per se. Uh, so it does, it measures stiffness. So if you get higher, if your L L enzymes are three, four, five hundred, yeah, then they're going to be, it's going to be way so, higher. Now they do have a new um, algorithm in the machine that you can buy, buy with your new machine that will calculate fat percentage as well hmm. based on the elasticity. Okay. So it, without so it actually tells doing, you NASH as well. It so. tells you the amount, percentage of fat in the liver actually, okay. which is very elegant and it's only a mathematical program, it's nothing, it's nothing you know, no different than this. They okay. also have portable machines too, size of a briefcase that you can take out to yeah. the clinic or out. So the, the, the thing is though that at least in the last couple years when you ask around, only maybe 10 centers, not that many have these things, maybe it's more now, yeah, 13 centers. So it's coming soon maybe to one near you, but maybe not too close, please. No, no, it's, this is like an ELA, this, this is like a specific it's, yeah. This is the probe. That, there's a probe that goes that thumps on the liver, basically. You know, and it, it sends the Doppler wave back and forth. It's they like do have MR exam. elastography, though, actually. So a lot of centers have now worked on the, the and ours does that as well. Mm -hmm. So you can get an MRI elastography, which probably costs you, you know, three thousand bucks or something compared to this. I don't know. We we can't charge for it because it's experimental. But okay. you know, it'll probably be two hundred. I think or something. either one of, one of a couple things are going to happen in the next five years. It could be that HCV of any genotype becomes like HCV two three now, and it almost becomes moot because if you're getting ninety five percent success rates, you're just going to treat and say to heck with it, um, and so you might not do anything. Or it, there might be some nuances that you still would not want to determine biopsies on. The trick also that Dr. Sherman has taught me is that how you do the biopsy and with what kind of needle makes a difference. So if you use, send them to IR, a lot of times they're afraid of complications, so they use a very skinny needle and you get a sort of not so good piece of tissue. Um, and in the case of University of Cincinnati and a lot of others, they use a uh, trocar that's about uh, five inches thick and they get a really good piece and they can tell you a lot. Now what size do you use usually? Um, we, we typically use a 16 gauge uh, needle. It's a cutting needle, not an aspiration needle and it gives us a two and a half to three centimeter long piece. Yeah. So you gotta get the right kind of biopsy. So here it is, there's your biopsy. It's got a little fat in it I guess and but there's not much inflammation and you really can't see any fibrosis, so this is almost a normal liver, and um, so he has that biopsy. I'm going to take you through three scenarios, so you, this is where you got to kind of pay attention because it's going to get a little complicated. So the first scenario is a normal liver. Um, what are you going to recommend? No therapy, wait, in other words, uh, treat with one of these guys. Go ahead and vote. Uh, that's not kind of music right there. You must zip it. Zippy long stocking. Okay, so 90 percent, 80 plus percent said no treatment. Would, any, would anybody, uh, besides arranging for your transportation, would anybody, uh, <laughs> would anybody treat this guy right now on the panel? You know, you have to ask him. 
Yeah, well, let's say he said, I'll, well, I'll do whatever you say, Doc. Yeah, that, that never happens. Well, you're in New no, York. Not, not to me. You're anyway. in the South now, bro. <laughs> <laughs> you're the doctor. Tell me what I should do. I'm not kidding. Right? That's the truth. See, yeah, all the heads are nodding in affirmative. Well, not all. Okay. It's not an adversarial relationship. Huh? No, not at all. It's very friendly and... Golly. Golly. There's public health implications to your decision. If it depends, you know, is he placing other people at risk because of his hep C? Is he... Uh, is, is he no, no more than usual. Okay. All right. But he's, he's CT. So, you know, you could get maybe a 70% success rate here. But, again, you've got to handhold him through a lot. Maybe you can get a rapid response and, and truncate to 24 weeks, perhaps. All right, let's, let's continue to scenario two. Here's a liver biopsy. There's not any bridging, but there's definitely some triad uh, scarring, et cetera. So we're going to call that, I think, mild. Maybe it's F12 or so. And so now you've got a whole bunch more options. Um, and you've got standard stuff, a clinical trial with uh, a pro another protease inhibitor. You've got a clinical trial with a polymerase inhibitor or, or an interferon-free uh, regimen like Kim was talking about. Go ahead and vote. All these came from Austin Towers. You know that? The Zippet one and this one was, uh, yeah, okay. All right. So it's either no therapy because it's kind of early or to a clinical trial with all oral therapy and then points in between. Um, Susanna, what do you do in this setting? Yeah, no, I certainly agree. I think it, given the information that we have, unless the patient is demanding treatment or there's something um, that's really pushing you to treat the patient, you're, you're going to wait. And the main reason you're waiting is because you know their interferon sparing is coming and you know that they, um, that it's uh, easier to take, has fewer side effects, and likely is more um, ha has improved outcomes, and so ultimately, if you can get them that earlier by clinical trial, I right. think that's completely reasonable. So. Right. So pay close attention to this one because we're going to come back to it. This is scenario three. This is a lot worse. I mean, even even I can see that this is bad. <laughs> right. It's it's not horrible, horrible. I'm sure there's worse, but it's pretty bad. Bridging, and this is stage three, perhaps four. And now, what are you going to do? Go ahead and vote. Now we've moved on to Rocky. <laughs> Apollo Creed is your patient. Get in there and treat. <laughs> Get in there and treat. That's Eye of the Tiger. Look, nobody would not treat. Okay. So, Dr. Sherman, tell us why you were excited besides the music. This guy has advanced liver disease, and looking at that biopsy, yeah. Uh, I think he's probably stage four, not stage three. And if he is compensated, then uh, he is has a high risk over the next few years of decompensating and being beyond therapy that we see available right now. So waiting wouldn't be proven. Waiting is not proven. Not going to do it. No. Okay. <laughs> Let's go to the next case. Whoops. Before we do this is this this is what I'm. I tried to articulate this in a picture that biopsies one, two, and three, and this is a relative urgency. So yeah, you can wait a little bit here, but you don't want to wait here. That was a point. Now let's look at the next scenario. Oh, sorry. Let me go quickly through this because I want to get to the last scenario before the, our hepatologists leave. So 
basically the new guidelines are saying that they want all comers, this is totally unprecedented, because those of us who sat through HIV know that they had to keep comparing to prior regimens. Now that you don't have to have uh, interferon ribavirin single control. You can have it versus placebo for now, and then let everybody have DAAs. A lot of the studies you saw were like that. Uh, biopsy is not required, although you heard criticism about that. And they want to get all populations and focus on drug-drug interactions, as Jennifer told us about. And uh, so, here's scenario four. If on exam, with that last biopsy, he had ascites, hemorrhoids, confusion, albumin of 2.1 INR, 1.8, et cetera, what would you recommend here? Go ahead and vote. Okay, let's see. All right, wow. two-thirds of us say that we should ask our hepatologist. Um, Doug, you want to tell us why that's a good idea since he's got a child's what looks like C and is headed for child's D, which I think means death? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these are my kind of people. Um, <laughs> look around my waiting room here. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, even if somebody like this is, yeah, they have about a 50% chance of crashing and burning if you treat them uh, during treatment. Now, it doesn't mean you can't fix that. You could still fix it, but it's... Well, the liver transplant. Well, no, no. I mean, you could give them, you know, diuretics and they get SBP. You can fix that. And, you know, but it's complicated. So I think you, this is the kind of guy you really need to get to see the transplant group and get, uh, get evaluated for transplant, get all that homework done. You know, social worker, psychiatrist, cardiology, uh, you know, insurance, everything chaplain. else. Chaplain. Yeah, chaplain, exactly. And then, and then, you know, if, if, he's get, if he gets cleared by the, you know, and I have backup. Now, the patients often object to this. They don't want to hear the word transplant. You know, so I tell them, well, just look at it this way. It's like, you know, we, it's like liver insurance, okay? So we're hoping you never have to use it, okay? But, you know, if, like, you need that parachute, you need that parachute. You know, it's like, I don't want you to meet the surgeons at midnight on a Saturday night. You know, I'd rather have you meet them at 8 o'clock Monday morning when they're more likely to be sober. <laughs> Perfect. And uh, I think the other take-home point is that interferon in a decompensated cirrhotic can send them into frank liver failure. So it's really malpractice, in a word, uh, to give interferon-based regimens. Unless, I guess, if you're a hepatologist and you're in a position where you have no choice, and that's their decision, not going to be our decisions, generally speaking. Uh, so that was the main point there. So now that we've gotten through the hepatology, I know our hepatologists have got to go. So thank you very much, and uh, we'll see you. Thank you. So we're, we're left with our intrepid, our intrepid ID and pharmacology team here. So, but it's good. We're going to get us through it. So now what I'm going to do is go back to scenario three. So this is the guy who, Army guy, and genotype one awful, and uh, kind of a high viral load, and, but compensated a little bit of a platelet count that's a little low. And he has a grade four, but compensated cirrhosis. So decisions made, he opts for this, which we suggested. The audience went with that. Initiated therapy uh, we get on June 1. On July 1, he's tired, feels okay. Um, RNA levels have dropped to less than 18. So, Dr. Nagy, that would be called a... ERVR. ERVR, early virologic response. And his labs are here, hematocrits here, 
white count, etc. So, but by week 12, his hematocrit's 27, and look, all the people left with the hepatologist. This is kind of cool. His, his hematocrit's 27, his white count's 2,700, and his platelet counts have come down some, but not god awful, and his RNA is still detectable. So now the question is, what did I say? It's undetectable. Yeah, the opposite of detectable. <laughs> Just wanted to see if you were paying attention. All right, so what are you going to do here? Continue the pegravir with telaprevir for 24 weeks. Continue them all for 48 weeks. Stop the telaprevir at week 12. Continue 24 weeks. Continue 48 weeks or stop all medicines. Now go ahead and vote. I hope we get this right. We talked about this four or five times today. Almost. Almost. Dr. Nagy, remember this guy had a great, this guy had stage four cirrhosis. Oh, you want to vote again? Oh, at least you groaned. That's good. You recognize what you missed. All right, so take us through this one more time. This is our teaching point. Yeah, so I think it's actually an important, important point to make as well. So say if that biopsy had come back as stage 3 and not read as stage 3 to 4, which sometimes the pathologist will do. It's important to recognize, as we talk about all of our diagnostic tests, that there is a lack of sensitivity with liver biopsy. Um, and so we generally say whatever the biopsy come back, come, comes back as in terms of your staging, you should always add one. So to me, a stage three is a stage four when you are making decisions about treatment for that patient and length of treatment for that patient. So this patient was read as a stage three, four, so clearly they're cirrhotic and would require a full year of treatment, whether you use telaprevir or bosaprevir. The telaprevir is still only 12 weeks, but you would go 36 additional weeks with peg and riba. So I think the answer would then be number four. I think everybody knew that. They just got confused. It was confusing. Okay. So, yeah, that's what we just said, basically. So the end of the story. Success. Yay. He did well. He's cured. And his wife didn't date a Zumba teacher. <laughs> All right. So this is version two, a different decision. So we're still in scenario three, version two. That is cirrhosis by biopsy compensated. Everything else is the same, but instead of using telaprevir for equal time, we're going to use bosaprevir. okay? So PEG-RIBA with bosaprevir initiates the PEG-RIBA, has a four-week run-in. July 1, four weeks into therapy, eight weeks total, of four weeks bosaprevir. He's tired, otherwise feels okay. Here's his story. His AST is here. His hematocrit is down to 25, though, and that's the major difference. <coughs> so what are you going to do? Uh, stop therapy, reduce ribavirin, uh, check iron and ferritin, and if okay, add EPO, stop the bosaprevir at this point, uh, et cetera. Go ahead and vote. I'm pulling for you. There is a right answer here. There's a single right answer here. Yay! All right, the red bar. That means we're working, looking at blood counts. Uh, Jennifer, you want to talk to us about the dosing of ribavirin and what you would recommend if, in case of dose reduction? Use a microphone, yeah. So based on the study at EASL, I would say go ahead and go down to 600 on the ribavirin. 600 once daily? 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think once daily is fine. I mean, really, the half-life of ribavirin, it's a drug that you could give once a day based on the half-life of it. And uh, there's internal data that's sharing, um, I guess, that they haven't ever published, but showing that maybe tolerability is an issue, and that's why they gave it twice daily. But really, the half-life of ribavirin, you could give it once a day. So 600 milligrams once a day is what we do in our patients when we dose reduce. One of the things we haven't said today, which I think is important to understand, is that when you give ribavirin, within maybe days, maybe minutes of your giving it, it induces a hemolysis. And that's why the red count drops so much so quickly. And it's a varied degrees, at least by a lot of people's experience, and I don't know if there are studies to back this up, but it seems that the patients who have the worst reactions end up having the best virologic outcomes. So we could look at this as a positive. Can you have any information on that or besides, yep? There's actual data? Yeah, there's, there's data dating back to PEG-RIBA alone and now in addition to triple combination that uh, shows that anemia equals uh, improved response. And we've okay. actually seen that from a psychiatric standpoint. Patients who have more severe side effects from the PEG appear to have improved SVR. So whether that's just because they have more exposure to the drug and drug it's levels is probably the, the, the likely right. you know, reason. So you basically cheer when they come in feeling like crap and right. they're anemic. And, yes, you're anemic. You're going to have it's success. It's a good sign. Well, yeah. there is that, gen that genotype, though, the inosine triphosphatase genotype, though, that those patients, um, they are not going to feel bad because right. they have protection against anemia, but they still could have adequate levels of ribavirin. Right. Okay. And I think it's important just to make the point here in this patient, um, for those of you who are actually treating, I mean, you're, you're following CBCs pretty closely, but this patient with a CRIP 25, I, I would argue just based on my practice so far that if you just dose reduced at that point, um, you're going to be chasing your tail. So usually you're seeing a, a rate of decline of a hemoglobin and you're dose reducing well before their crits hit 25. Because if you get to the point where their crits now 25, you're probably going to be doing EPO and dose reduction at the same time. Um, otherwise, what you don't want to get into is the need to transfuse. transfuse. And this becomes even more complicated when you're using bosepervir because as opposed to telopervir where you can kind of cross your fingers and hope you make it across, across that eight to 12 week threshold, with bosepervir, it's, it's a long, this is a, it's a long race and so um, you, you really need to be on top of this look at rate of change of hemoglobin start dose reducing um, very quickly and uh, and then as you're monitoring adding EPO on if you realize that you're not gonna you're not gonna get things back up quickly enough to to have to discontinue right. medication right and the lesson we learned back in the HIV days is that you want to make sure Typically, the iron and ferritin stores are high enough so that it can respond to EPO. But I wonder in this case, since it's a hemolysis that starts it, it seems like the iron stores ought to be okay. Do you recommend checking it all the time before you give EPO? Uh, they check iron stores before they start treatment at, okay. at Colorado just to make sure that they're really uh, That's Probably because I don't think the third-party payers pay for it unless you do it. Yeah. And we, I mean, we certainly, we, at least in our practice, um, we initiate uh, iron when, when we initiate EPO. Okay. Fair enough. All right, so he got a little better. The end of the story, he continues on, and yay, he's successful. So I try to make this as positive as, as I can. Okay, so we got time maybe for another that, quick. I would just quickly, that, that is, I think, another point. If you're starting EPO, your goal of hemoglobin is only 10. So you, you don't want to push people to hemoglobins of 12 or 14, which you certainly can see people do. Once you hit that hemoglobin of 10, you've hit your threshold, you're discontinuing your EPO, and then, and then seeing um, um, how you can get things to level out. But you don't want to push past 10, given the risks associated with erythropoietin, obviously. Right, right. Okay, so this is a different case. Uh, there's a 46-year-old guy, type 2 diabetes, neuropathy, chronic HCV, sort of co-infected. 
released from prison six months ago to reestablish care, uh, MSM, no IV drug use, heavy alcohol in the past. He's currently sober. Uh, HCV was diagnosed in the mid-90s, no episodes of jaundice or end-stage disease. He's on metformin, tenofovir, FTC, darunavir that's boosted, gabapentin, durabinol, and morphine. Um, I'm not sure why the morphine, but how many patients do you have on morphine that you aren't sure why they're on morphine? <laughs> say, I've always been on a doc. Write me the prescription. Uh, I can argue with you for 35 minutes, or I can write the prescription. <laughs> and no stigmata. His lab shows um, not too bad. INR is okay, so he's not decompensated. Here again, the low platelet count. Mildly enlarged liver, normal spleen, no ascites. He's heard about new stuff and wants to be treated, potentially. And then you get genotype one awful and 3.7 million. He's got a biopsy back in 08 with F3-4. Dr. Nagy, any chance that that has gotten him better in the last three years? I actually think that's a great question. So you did mention that he has a remote history of alcohol use. Right. Um, and I, you know, there are many people uh, who would argue that HCV in and of itself does not cause significant liver disease, and that it usually is a comorbidity that is the primary driver. So if he, you know, was an alcoholic and drinking heavily um, and was biopsied at the time of his, you know, alcohol use and has now abstained from alcohol, is there a possibility that indeed his fibrosis level has improved? The answer is yes. Okay. Um, would I re-biopsy him? The answer is no. Okay. <laughs> there we are. So it's possible but not possible enough to where you're going to stick his liver again, and you're probably going to lean towards treating him as we are. Um, his viral uh, treatment history on Afavarin's in prison, he uh, developed a virologic failure with a K103N, but no K65R, and interestingly, no M184V, at least detected. Um, and then, so he got put on this four months ago, and he's doing pretty well, and he's happy with the regimen. So now, you're going to think about treating him. You're going to wait until better drugs. You're going to watchfully wait until this, or you're going to treat him with this, but with or without a change in his ARVs and treat with Bosepravir with or without a change. Go ahead and vote. The tempo of the music is starting to, <laughs> starting to settle down here. Okay, so most people would lean towards Tilapravir. Um, Dr. Nagy, you would treat here? I, I certainly think that you would treat, and I think probably the main reason people are leaning towards telopravir is that at this point in time with our, you know, inpatient data, we have more data to help us understand drug-drug interactions and, and safety um, with HIV drugs and telopravir. Um, hopefully we will have increasing information as we discussed with bisepravir. So, um, yeah, I think you are going to have to be a little creative and extremely careful in switching his antiretroviral. Let's see, let's see, I'm going to get Jennifer to you in a second, but let's say he wasn't on Darunavir, he was on Raltegravir. Let's go ahead and revote this one and just see if that changed anybody's opinion for the reasons that Dr. Nagy said. Be interesting. This is like a marketing survey, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it's a quiet marketing survey, I might add, <laughs> that shows, eh, so it picked up from less than 3% or so to 22 but now everybody's treating, I guess, because I focused everybody that way. All right, so Dr. Kaiser, what, what, what about the darunavir and uh, tilaprovir? You went over this. Let's reinforce. What do you think? Yeah, what do you guys remember? So darunavir interacts uh, with what? 
it interacts with both bocetprevir and tilaprevir. Um, so raltegravir is a good alternative. Right. So this is the raltegravir data. I, I don't mean to belabor the point, but it, it looks pretty friendly, and that's because of the glucuronidation pathway. And you mentioned sobosfavir, which is the Gilead 7977, is also kind of a friendly pathway um, that might be good for minimizing drug-drug interactions. Yeah, I haven't seen the data yet, and um, it also need the intracellular pharmacology of that drug needs to be looked at with other nucleosides to make sure there's no intracellular antagonism, but I don't anticipate a problem. Oh, that, yeah. And I think almost every pharmacologist who I've ever worked with, um, the longer they've been in the field, the more humble they become, because you, anticipating a problem, it, we try to predict things, and then you see that 70-fold uh, change in... Uh, uh, the, which one was it? The, Tacrolimus. Uh, Tacrolimus. Tacrolimus, yeah, and, and Tacrolimus, and you see this, and you kind of go, where'd that come from? Um, okay, so what if he was a partial responder, that he had gotten pegriba <laughs> and dropped more than two logs, but didn't get undetectable, so it was a futility thing, and stopped? So would that change your opinion? So if he was a partial responder in the past, but not with the protease inhibitors, would that, would that change what you did? Would you still treat? And assume now he's on raltegravir again. So your options are waiting or retreating a guy as a partial responder. Go ahead and vote. There's subliminal hints in this message of the music to say, <laughs> carry on. <laughs> and most of you did. Okay, very good. So Dr. Nagy, you would agree with this? Yeah, I would. I mean, no. The truth is, I think we would all agree that we ultimately make this decision based on the severity of his liver disease. This guy has severe liver disease. Partial responders actually still do very well. Yeah. Um, and so I, I would. What if he were a null, null responder and had TT genotype and was black? Yeah, so then I think I'd have to go back to look at the severity of his liver disease. Um, this is a patient that I now would. Now you'd probably re-biopsy him. That actually may be the case, given his history of alcohol use, and we're making this decision based on the fact that he has significant liver disease. Um, but I'm trying to think back to his labs and what his platelet count was. It was and, 110 you know, or something. Yeah, so, you know, this is the problem. Is he, that, that's a sign of probably early, early portal hypertension. These are things that are not reversible. And so this is where you really have to start thinking about the severity of the liver disease. And this is a situation that I think we've all gotten ourselves into, where these null responders that are cirrhotics have very poor response rates. And yet, ultimately, they're the ones that we feel need the therapies the most. Um, and so I think we, I mean, I don't know about the show of hands of how many of you have a null, null responder cirrhotic on treatment right now. And I'm guilty of that. Um, but it's, I mostly do it in patients who have early portal hypertensive change. They're compensated, but early portal hypertensives, and I just don't think have a chance to wait. Right. So I think you're getting that. It seems like everybody's on the same page. This is kind of cool. So the, the day sounds like it's been worthwhile to me so far. So good. Okay, themes are coming back. We're being consistent. Here's what we were just talking about. The partial responders not doing quite as well as the overall. The relapsers, for some reason, did a little better here. Maybe it's the numbers. But the null responders are kind of not doing so well. This was not. No, no. Yeah, this is Zuzim's study. So it's worse with HIV. So that's the point. Good point. We don't have the HIV data for treatment experience patients. Those patients are now, you know, the Vertex study is enrolled. 5294 is going. Um, but 
I would hope that we would see very similar responses in treatment experienced HIV co-infected patients. Mm -hmm. And so you know, I think relapsers make some sense. Those are patients that we know are highly responsive. Um, and that's why we've kind of said they're the low hanging fruits. So if you took all comers, some of those all comers are null, would have been null responders or partial responders. When you take relapsers, you're taking this highly selective, very interferon responsive group of patients. So it makes sense that they may have been better responders. Okay. Yeah. So Dr. Kaiser told you the answer here. I'm not sure. You can look it up if you want. There's not an re audience response, but maybe you can yell it out. If you were going to go look up drug information, probably one of the best sites to look at is? Liverpool. Liverpool. So all you have to think is the Beatles, right? They should pay me. And there you are. You go to the cavern, kind of, you know, got some band in there, and you check out your drug interactions. It's really nice. I don't know how many of you have used this, but when you type in your things, it actually will print out for your patient the list of drug interactions there you go. so that you can hand it to them when they walk out of the clinic, which is actually a fantastic resource. Just remember the British spelling for some drugs. That's so that, that's the only thing that'll have to catch you. Yeah. And, and for oesophagus, that's another one that'll trip you up. And oedema, and O-Calcutta. Cyclosporin is Okay, so we're back to, this is the same case. Triple phase shows no evidence of that. EGD is done, which we didn't talk about, but every, any patient with cirrhosis be done um, twice yearly in general, at least once a year. And ARVs were switched to Adizanavir. He got put on um, Tilaprevir, but how did he get it? Well, he only has Ryan White and most, a lot of ADAP. Does Georgia ADAP cover? No. no? Okay, so then you're going to call, you're going to call uh, uh, for the Tilaprevir uh, Patient Insistence Fund, and this is in your, this will be on the web, and you can uh, access this. I think it's really important to note that um, one of these, um, and maybe both, actually cover the copay for patients with insurance. Because I think we forget that if you have insurance, copays are really expensive. And so they've been nice enough to cover the copays for my patients who have insurance who could not have afforded it if they couldn't afford their copay. And that's a really huge resource. Yeah, I mean, it could be well over $12,000 if it's a 20% <laughs> copay. Nupagen, there are for all of them, yeah. EPOs, I think, well, there's two different types, right? But the EPAGEN is created by, I think, J&J. And, &J. and um, Procrit. Procrit, yeah. But not for liver Right. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a problem. I mean, we all, this is part of life. It's, we know we have the best health care system in the world, they say. Right. Yep. Well, somehow this guy ended up with all kinds of medicine. And, uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> And at baseline, this is what he ended up doing, and he ended up with a rash that resolved. I skipped that for the interest of time. Um, and now he's at week four, and his viral load is here, and his white count is here. And you know, this is a guy with a partial responder in the past. Yada yada yada. What are you going to do? Who are you going to call? I
Dr. Dietrich, Ghostbusters. Look at your hand out. Right, 50% would stop everything. Dr. Nagy, is that consistent with your recommendations? Yes. Yeah, so stopping everything. I mean, so this was one of those futility rules that we said for Tilaprovir. A little stop sign. Yeah, a little stop Greater sign. Greater than 1,000. Okay. Yeah. Um, for whatever reason, that result didn't come <laughs> back. This is just to reinforce the point of futility, so he continued, and guess what? This wasn't any better. At least they repeated it at one week and not 12 weeks later. There you go. But look at what happens. I, I want uh, So what's it, going back to George Shaw and a few other comments, what's the chance that he has resistance to, to Laprevere at, let's say, week five um, after this type of response? Go ahead and vote. Almighty. Whose iPod is this? <laughs> wow. Okay. So the audience thinks it's a pretty high chance. You'd agree? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So th when you have a virus that's replicating at, you know, warp speed, I mean, there, there's, you know, in HIV, it's one to 10 billion viruses a day. Here, it's, it's like um, a trillion or something. I mean, it's huge. It's, it's, it's very high. I got a great joke that goes with that, but I'll <laughs> skip it in the interest of time. It's too political and I'll get criticized. Okay. I'll tell you at the end if you want to hear it. All right. So this is where, this is where relapses are happening and there's, there's uh, genetic uh, stuff that's done and you can see that after treatment, it was about 75 to 80% had a resistant variant and it almost doesn't matter which type, but What's important to know is that unlike HIV, where if this had happened in the absence of further treatment, that would become the new wild-type virus. And every now and then, the wild-type original non-resistant virus would grow back and outgrow because of fitness. Here, the fitness advantage must be so much that these, these viruses ultimately start to disappear. The second major difference between HIV and HCV is that, remember, there's no proviral integration into the host. So the notion of having archive resistance, it may happen, but it's not a sure thing. And so it's very, very possible, if not likely, that two years later when this virus is cleared out and you can't detect it there anymore, that the likelihood of an archive resistant virus may not be present anymore, or it may. That's not completely worked out yet. We'll find out when we start using protease inhibitors on patients like this years later. Um, but it's fair to say that the biology is quite different. There is not going to be cellular DNA archived in the host. And we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, Suzanne. Yeah, I, I just think it's also important to note that this is population level sequencing, which is 20%. Yep. Um, so what matters clinically, and I think we would all clearly argue that, that less than 20% is going to be highly clinically relevant still, and where does that cutoff occur? And we, we're starting to see some deep sequencing data coming out, but, um, but I think ultimately this timeline is going to get pushed further back as to what a clinically relevant um, level of a mutant virus is. And the point of this whole exercise, the whole point of showing these slides the way we are, is that this is the consequence if you push on. You say, ah, it's only, it's only a little bit of above 1,000. Let's keep going. All you're going to do is increase your chances of breeding just more resistance, and that's why the futility rules are there. That's the point. Okay.
I think we're almost done. Uh, this is the clonal, clonal analysis, which is similar to deep sequencing. <coughs> and, um, and this, I'm trying to think what the time frame is. I don't remember this very well. But the bottom line is it's is a lot of resistant virus. This is percent samples with no detectable variant. So this is where it reversed. But again, I don't know that we can count on that just yet. I don't know how long after the study was over that they did this. I don't remember. Okay. So clonal analysis on, oh, this may help me. 80 clones, 90 follow-up variants found in 1% in both time points, apparent return to baseline. But again, we don't know yet about archived. So. Here's the question. This guy's just failed therapy. You're at week five. You sort of hope for the best, and it knocked you down. Are you going to ask for a genotype? And they are available commercially. Would you order an HCV genotype? Um, I'll take four out of the picture. Go ahead and vote. Yeah. I, I don't see... What we're going to learn from that necessarily? Do you? Would you? Yeah, no, I mean, I think we know. I think we know that the patient's going to have resistance, and you know, some people would argue that it'd be good to know for future, um, in terms of getting second-generation protease inhibitors, and if there's cross-resistance with some mutations and not others, because you know that this is going to drop off. But ultimately, um, we have no idea what the clinical utility is at this point in time, and I suspect I have not ordered one. Um, I suspect it's an extremely expensive test. I think until we have um, validation in the clinical setting to use these things, we, we, we probably shouldn't be pay having patients pay for them. So this will be in your handout in case you want to go there. It tells you what to get a, a, a purple top tube in essence and seven to 10 days and here's your CPT codes and all that stuff. And uh, there's a bank account in Switzerland that you can <laughs> access as well to pay for it. Um, I'm gonna skip this. Yeah, it's kind of cute. Okay. There's a lot of structures here. <laughs> they seem to be related to one another and they sort of work together. Uh, don't comment on that one. And these are the different mutations that might be cross-resistant. Generally speaking, red is bad. Green is better. So where's the happily ever after in this case? T stopped his medicine, the split decision to continue, but he just didn't go for it, and everything was stopped, and now he's waiting for the direct acting agents. So in the interest of time, I think I'll, there's a third case that Kim uh, uh, sent us that, in essence, was acute infection. And I'll just fly through it without the, without the uh, audience response. But there's basically, this is a guy who's sexually active. And the take-home point is he's on crystal meth. He's unprotected rectal exposure. He's HIV-infected. And his routine labs show an elevated ALT, and he comes in after this all, and basically he's sexually active, as I said. Uh, you're going to get all these different things. The trick is that here, the, the current STD guidelines say check for acute hepatitis C while you're checking for these other STDs when you're part of your screening, because you'll be surprised how often you'll find it, especially when the AST and ALT are elevated. And this is the natural history of this. This would have been about, this patient's case would have been right here. And then he's in the midst of seroconverting by day 50 or so. The ALT goes quite high. The AST can go quite high. And then it settles down. And in term, I should try to combine these slides, but this is basically the viral load. So it looks just like acute HIV, right? 
so very high when the, you know, here, here at 50 is when the inflammation's happening. That inflammation is coincident with reducing the viral load, so it's an immune response driving the virus back down. But this patient just uh, acutely seroconverted hepatitis C, and the take-home point is that this is a good time to treat them if you're going to, because your cure rates are going to be higher by all criteria. So, Dr. Nagy, when would you treat this person, if at all? Yeah, so I think this, and it's also important to make to make the point. So we, you know, we talked about this a little bit in the in the intro session, but I think everyone would argue that you have to give this patient three months to spontaneously clear. There is data from European cohorts of acute um, HCV infection showing that if they have a greater than two long decline within four weeks of their initial infection, their chance of clearing is very high, over 80 percent. And those are patients that you should allow, kind of monitor their viral loads and allow to spontaneously clear. I think this is a really important point. Patients during this going on to either chronic infection or spontaneous clearance can suppress and then bounce up again. And so don't be fooled. Don't check a viral load once or twice and then be fooled by the fact that they were undetectable because they can absolutely be undetectable and then go back into chronic infection as there's this battle between the innate immune response and the virus itself. So, you know, we give patients three months to spontaneously clear, but after that three-month time point, if they're not meeting those criteria, then you want to treat them with peg and riba as soon as possible because you have a chance of 60-70% chance of cure if they're HIV co-infected and even higher if they're mono-infected with six months of therapy. And I think nowadays, even though the data would suggest that even with PEG interferon alone you can achieve high cure rates, the standard of care at this point is PEG and riba for, for six months. And I didn't say this, but obviously just like other seroconverters, the HCV antibody test early on is going to be negative right. and it's going to be the viral load that you check for. So we're used And to I think that's why it's critically important. The CDC recommendations that came out in 2010 were, were a big change, um, saying that, uh, you know, a, a patient with HIV who has high sexual practice, high risk sexual practices, should have an antibody test every year. And that if they have an elevated ALT in the midst of that, um, that they should have an antibody test at that time. And if it's negative, even an RNA. And that's a huge change from what we were previously doing in our practice, I think, right. prior to 2010. Yeah. So, <coughs> yep. And he ended up with genotype 3, which ain't so bad. And this is the guideline references. And I think that's it. Okay. Yes, questions? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Um, so the, I think, or questions. So one is the HCV antibody is lifelong. Um, so two is if you have someone who spontaneously clears the, the, the idea, so you know, the way that we make the diagnosis of chronic infection is two, or, or of spontaneous clearance is two RNAs over a six month period of being negative. So that, I think most of us would feel comfortable that that's the case. And that is also what you need to confirm chronic infection as well, two positive RNAs over a six month period. If you have someone who has achieved an SVR, um, the ASLD guidelines are, 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 there's no data to tell us how often you need, once you hit that SVR 24, 
No one really knows how often you should test them. So I imagine every practice is different. We usually say, so you go SBR 12, SBR 24. We usually say check six months again to the year and then check every year. And then, then we're like, okay, and then we're going to send you back to your primary care doctor and they can just make it up as they go along because that's really what you're doing. I mean, we have data to show that seven years out, 98% of these people still have undetectable viral loads. That means there is a very few number of patients who will have a positive viral load again, and whether that's new infection or not. I mean, I think most people argue it's new infection. We don't have, you know, uh, sequencing data to suggest that it's the same virus. So you, you really should at some point, you know, monitor their viral loads. But I think the farther out you get, the less frequently you have to do it. And as far as I know, and per the ASLD guidelines, there is no true um, good evidence-based answer for that. I think it's a great question. Other questions? Yes. I think that's a very fair argument, and I think you could probably, um, you know, have some people uh, in the room or maybe that have left the room who would agree with you. Uh, I think ultimately for genotype 2s, if you had a patient who had a lower, you know, platelet count, anything to suggest that they possibly had significant scar, you would want to biopsy them and confirm that. Um, but the standard has been that twos do not always receive biopsies, and I think that ultimately you have to understand, look at how long the patient's had disease. So many people will make a decision on a genotype two, how long have you had disease, have you ever, have you, do you have an extensive history of alcohol use, do you have other risk factors that would increase your risk of significant fibrosis? And if that is the case, most people would argue that that two should also be biopsied. Again, it gets to the idea that if they had only genotype two and nothing else, many people would argue that hep C in and of itself does not cause significant liver disease treat them, cure them, and move on. Genotype 3s are different. Genotype 3 causes significant steatosis. We know as a, as a genotype of the virus, which increases your risk of having fibrosis. So there are many people, um, hepatologists, who, who push for liver biopsy in genotype 3 patients. So I think you do have to consider all those other risk factors that truly cause risk of significant liver disease. And we, so we don't just use liver biopsy to make decisions on treatment, even though that's what we're focusing on in this, in this, you know, in this conference. You do make decisions about risk of, um, of having fibrosis and how to manage that patient for the rest of their life. And, and I think someone has heavy alcohol use, and historically, if, regardless of their genotype, they should be biopsied. Um, and uh, I, I imagine our hepatologist colleagues would have agreed with that. So a uh, question over here, yes. Yeah, no, you know, it, it, the IL-28 discovery is really fun to talk about scientifically, I think. Um, in, in a way, it's a shame it wasn't discovered 10 years ago because it would have played a huge role in clinical practice. But today, if you ask me, do I use it in my clinical practice on a regular basis, the answer is no. Um, you know, I think ultimately, we, from, a, from a patient um, individualized standpoint, if you really have a patient who's struggling on making a decision and you can't convince them one way or the other, you can use that. But it's an expensive test and I do not think it should play a primary role in decision making. We actually, for most clinical trials, do collect it and sometimes stratify by it because they found very early on in phase twos with less potent therapies, if you didn't stratify and you had a bunch of CCs in your, in your standard care arm, you could not show significant benefit from your new drug. Um, but as we get more potent therapies, I think it's going to become 
um, obsolete, to be honest with you. Um, so I, I would not encourage it as standard of practice use. That's just me. Okay, and one last question, yes. So, uh, yeah, I, that is a great question. I suspect the two men sitting here who have been doing this a lot longer than I will have a better answer. I don't know if you do, but I would ultimately say I would identify, we could certainly give you names of people who do research, who can do sequencing, because we know the sequences that differentiate a one from a two from a three. Um, and, and all you'd have to do is something that probably is not available in a core lab, but would certainly be available in a research lab, because I think it's critically important for, for you to know. There, there's also more than four. Right, yeah, so it could be six, it could right. be a rare, it could be a five or a six or something yeah. like that. So that's that's maybe, but sequencing. I'd talk with CDC; they'd probably have interest in it. Yeah. actually. Okay, I think we'll wrap up. A couple conclusions from the afternoon. You heard a great discussion about uh, drug interactions, and the thing to remember is that you can't really predict them, even if you really know what you're talking about. You've got to really wait for the studies to sort it out. We've been fooled a lot. And uh, there's great websites to go to, including the Liverpool. And uh, Jennifer's got her phone number in the handout, and you can call her anytime you want. Really? Yeah, right. And uh, then we heard about the complications of therapy, and Dr. Sherman did a great job of going through rash management and depression, although I'm not sure that the psychiatrist would fully buy into his uh, algorithm, it, but it's probably about as good as any. And. Uh, the other complications of therapy and, and how to manage those. And we finished with a wrap-up that hopefully reinforced a lot of the points and, and drove it home, because I think that's really what it takes. When, for, for most of us, especially if we've been doing HIV care, the transition to HCV is, is not all that difficult. It's not as high a hurdle. The nuances take some practice, take a little bit of time, won't take you long. But with a course like this and the information you have, the reinforcement we had at the end, just kind of keep it in your mind. And once you start seeing the patients, these types of questions will come up like we just heard. And there are people around who you can ask. Future events, there's going to be uh, April 9th and 10th. I know that people have to get things on their calendar to arrange. So there's going to be the HCV. Can you all help me get to that slide? But there's an HIV and HCV workshop here again. So it's our usual HIV annual meeting. Um, and it's, um, I think it's on the 10th. Yeah, and then the HCV workshop, which would be very similar to what you saw had here. So even if you don't want to go through this again, which you could, it'll be a half day. Um, you might have colleagues who would like to learn and come to that. So get it on the calendar. We found that the announcements happening six months in advance are better because people can block things out. So, Dr. Nagy, any final comments or? I don't think so. Thank nope. you all for your attention and your great yeah. questions. It's been a great day. Thank you. And thank you to the ISUSA staff, as always. <laughs>